All right, now, I don't know what you picked as your favorite lyric on there, but I'm just going to jump through a couple of mine just um, real quick. Um, when you watch an Minion video as he begins to talk about this song, Uncomfortable, and why he wrote it, he was reading in First Samuel the story of David, and he's talking about on the time when David and Bathsheba and Nathan busted him in his sin. He's saying, we've got to grip the sword, like the sword... Many times we take the sword or we take the word of God and we try to chop down other people when we really need to take the word of God and, and apply it to our own lives and let it, let it dive in and, and investigate our own soul and our own beliefs and the only the ways that we think. And one of the things that I loved on here is he said, um, if you're jumping ship now, you are never on board. Because so, one thing I don't want you to do tonight is I don't want you to take um, this idea of the stuff that we're going to talk about, we're going to try to talk about the truth of God, and I don't want you to jump ship. You know, not many people um, in our world today are going to try to expose you and talk to you about the things that you're going to face that we're going to talk about tonight. The words that are talked about out there, not all enough in here. And so I'm excited tonight to talk about what God's plan is for equality, for sexuality, uh, for life, and how God works inside of those different areas. And so I'm excited about where God is going to take us um, kind of on this journey um, tonight. And you'll notice that um, in that second verse, it talks about so many controversial issues like racism and um, Jesus would never say something like that and things like that. We want to investigate that tonight and see um, what is the truth. Because I don't know about you guys, but too often we've lost sight of our true mission in life for Christ. How many of you, when your Wi-Fi is not working, are really frustrated? Anybody? That was me today. The Wi-Fi stopped working and like, oh, anger walls up inside of us while people in the world are dying, when people in the world are being oppressed. And so if you'll turn the page, the first thing that I want you to realize is that we have three foundational places that we have to build out of first so that you understand exactly where I'm coming from. Here are the three areas that I think we have to agree on 100% in order to have this discussion. The first one is this, that the Bible is God's source of truth, his revelation to us. Here's some verses that I'm basing that on. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's what we're going to do tonight is use the scripture in order to teach and guide and figure out God's truth. Proverbs 30 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart towards God. But we'll also notice that God has given us the word as a tool, right? For the word of God, this is in Hebrews is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God's word has a tendency to dive into that place where your soul and your spirit live and begin to guide you 
So everything that I say tonight, I want to be very clear. There's things that I'm going to say that are going to be truth from God's word. And there's going to be things that are going to be my opinion. And I'll do my best to give you that leeway. When I talk about my opinion, you have tons of room to argue, debate, and and say that I'm wrong because I'm beginning to build a case for something. But when it's spelled out for us in God's word, then you have to take your argument to him. When it's spelled out clearly in God's word, now your, your, your debate is with God Almighty. And some of you might be in that case right now. You might say, well, I don't know about God's word. I don't, I don't want to just give that as being truth. And I'm going to give you some logical arguments. I'm going to give you some things outside the Bible. But ultimately, you have to decide in your heart what you believe about who God is and who Jesus Christ is. Because otherwise, we're not going to, I'm going to give you Christ's perspective on these social issues. And whenever I'm not giving you Christ's perspective, I'm giving you my perspective. And that's where we can agree to disagree. But when it's something that's spelled out in God's word, we have to agree that that's going to be truth. Here's the second thing, clearly taught in God's word, that there is no excuse not to love people. There is no excuse to hate Any form of bigotry that we have in our world today, any form of bigotry that is in your heart has got to leave if you have the Holy Spirit. God gives us no room for hate. He tells us to love our neighbors. He tells us to love our enemies. Look what it says in Matthew 22. They asked Christ, teacher, which of these is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You see, Christ knew if your affections are wavering, if you're not grounded in your love for God, you're going to get thrown off course. James says you're going to be tossed to and fro like a wave of the sea. If you're not grounded in your relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not going to have anything to hold your worldview together. And he said, this is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love not just the person that lives next door to you, but you shall love everyone that you run into. Those are your neighbors. So we're to love. And it says that all of the law depends on these two commandments. Any other rule that you make depends on these two rules. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. John, John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you should love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have a love for one another. So in order to share the gospel with people without speaking a word, it comes from the love that you share with one another and with the world. They will know us by our love. That's why I hate when um, people with the nickname of Christian want to go out and pick it and want to do all these things that show hate towards other people because they're just ignoring this verse. We should be showing love to one another. And then in Matthew 5, Christ took it even further, right? This is the Sermon on the Mount. It says, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So even if I turn into your enemy tonight, you still have to love me. I like that verse a lot. But it also means that the people in this world that disagree with us, God has still called us to love them and still called us to pray for them. And I know we don't understand this because we're not under real persecution like so much of the world. 
like China or being a Christian in Iran or Iraq right now where at any point ISIS could come in and burn your church down, could put you on video and behead you. That's persecution. That's fear of Satan trying to rule our life. We, have, we don't have that. We have people disagreeing with us and we should love them and persecute them. Read stories of the martyrs and the way they acted towards the people that were their captors and you'll see true love that's in this verse right here. So number one, we have to believe that God's word is truth. Number two, we have to understand that there's no room for hate and no room for bigotry. And the last one is this. Our identity has to be in Christ. In Christ alone. Right, we sing that song. Because here's why. If your identity is found in a belief system outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to begin to crumble. For example, if my identity was found in how much you like me, like, for example, if I had like a little like screen and then ding, 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 you could like what I said and not say, and my whole identity was built on how many likes I get on a picture, believe me, people's identities are built on how many likes you get on Facebook or Instagram. Oh, I'm at 99. Calling friends, like me so I can get to 100. Our identity is built many times in those things. If our identity is anywhere besides Christ, those things are going to fail us. Look at these verses. It says Galatians 2.20. And this is where the rubber really hits the road. This is where you've got to really decide what team you're on. Are you a Christian? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Because it says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you were buried with Christ in baptism and raised to newness of life. You are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Did you hear that? From now on, we don't look at each other like the world does. We don't look at each other based upon what you're wearing or, or how you are. We look at it according to Jesus Christ. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled himself, us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You know what that means? The ability to reconcile with one another, to work together. That is, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them, and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. We should be, as Christians, spreading a message of reconciliation through love. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled with God. All right? So those are our three foundations that we have to begin with, that God's word is truth, right? that he calls us to love, and that our identity alone is found in him. Now, what do I mean? I think there's a way that I can show you what identity found in, in Christ means better than my testimony. So I want you to watch this video. Um, this video is about um, a homosexual man um, in, out in L.A. in the, in the biz, movie business, and I think he says it a lot better um, than I could say. We showed it at church probably a couple months ago, but I wanted you guys to be able to see it um, as well. Kevin, can you hit that? I moved to Los Angeles pretty much seeking fame and fortune. 
I had some success at acting and some success at writing. It ultimately wasn't enough to sustain me, so I kind of fell into set design, and um, that's what I do now. For a while, it was fulfilling, but I always felt it wasn't enough. Like I wanted to do, I wanted to be kind of bigger and do bigger things, and I wanted to be the photographer instead of the set designer and like I wanted my name to be bigger on the magazine or whatever. I felt like I was just constantly striving to do something that people would recognize and to make my mark and to get affirmation and my peers were all super successful in Hollywood and so I wanted, I always was striving to kind of keep up with them. I just felt if I got that then that would fulfill me and that would fill that void in me. I also pursued relationships with guys and I pursued those to fill that void as well. I always thought with, with each guy, I thought, okay, this is going to be the one, this is going to be the person that saves me and makes me happy and this is like going to give me meaning in life and purpose and of course they all failed. All the things that I was pursuing were not filling me, where they weren't fulfilling anything. I never thought about God. I just kind of thought, it, this is, God is a fairy tale, it's all a fairy tale, and it's not real. I was at a coffee shop in Los Angeles, and I saw a group of people reading Bibles. It kind of piqued my interest, and I was with a friend, and um, everyone got up and left except this one person, and we turned around and started chatting with him. He explained his faith and the gospel really well to me. This person I met at this coffee shop invited me to his church. I had no idea what I was getting into, and I walked into this church, and I sat down, and Pastor Tim started preaching on Romans 7, and I just remember um, being blown away by everything he was saying. I was just, I remember thinking that every word was truth. It was kind of a Saul to Paul conversion. Like I just, God just revealed Jesus was real. The Bible was real. Heaven was real. The resurrection was real. Everything was real. I just, in that moment, I knew everything was absolutely truth. And I, I just, I just remember that day just being so filled with, I mean, so many emotions, but one just like was, I know the meaning of life now. Like, this is crazy. Like, I know the meaning of life, and I can't believe it. Like, everyone's pursuing the meaning of life, and I know it. I was actually working on a shoot, so I went immediately on Monday back to work. I was so full of joy that I just told everyone on the sh on every shoot I was working on. I was like, I just met Jesus Christ, and it's he's real, and it's amazing, and I'm a Christian. And a lot of people were very surprised. I suddenly saw set design as just a total blessing because I'm on different sets like every week. I'm exposed to a lot of different people and I just find that it's it's a, just a great, it's just a great place to, to share the gospel. When I talk to people who struggle with homosexuality and I share the gospel with them, it can be difficult, but what I find is interesting is they can never say you haven't been in my shoes because I've been in their shoes and I'm like, yeah, I know. I know exactly what you are thinking and what you feel because I was in the exact same situation. Like, I thought that being gay was absolutely who I was. Like, from the core of my being, I believed that who, that's who I was. 
And then after my conversion, my identity just completely changed, and my identity was in Christ. I don't care if I never get to be in a relationship again with someone on this earth and have a romantic relationship and be with another person. Like, I have a relationship with the king of the universe, and nothing compares to that. And so I don't, I don't ever feel that it's unfair. I don't feel like I'm being kind of cheated out of something. I just feel absolutely the opposite. I feel like it's, it's amazing grace that I get to know the God of the universe and have a relationship with him. Now that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about this idea that God's word is truth as God opened his eyes. But how many of us would have ignored them? How many of us sitting in that coffee shop would have ignored the two gay guys sitting next to us and not shared the gospel, not invited them to church, not um, shared that, and then see this incredible transformation of this person who saw his identity in homosexuality, and yet when God rescued him, that identity totally changed. Instead of feeling cheated by, oh, no, now I'm a Christian, I can't do these things, it was like, no, I have the God of the universe is my friend. It's worth it. You see, that, that's what we're talking about. Where is your identity? If you put any qualitative adjective in front of Christ, in front of Christian, you're wrong. If you say, well, I'm a, I'm a homosexual Christian. No, no, you're a Christian. We need to stop putting categories and just say, we are believers in Jesus Christ, first and foremost, and that's where our identity is found. Everything else outside of that is according to his word, which is truth, is according to loving one another, is according to finding that one identity in him. So convicting that story, how many of us would have been bold enough to tell them about Christ? Or we would have been like, oh, I'm, I'm late for an appointment, I gotta go. Or would we have taken the time to invite? So we're gonna talk about that tonight. What does that mean in three areas of social issues? The first one is gonna be inequality. The second one is going to be in life. And the last one is going to be in sexuality. So when we talk about inequality, we're going to talk about um, social issues, gender issues, racial issues. When we talk about life, we're going to talk about abortion, maybe hit on birth control a little bit, hit on some things like that. When we talk about sexuality, we're obviously going to talk about homosexuality, transgender, things of that nature as well. And as we get into it, I want you to look at the top of that next page. I want to remember what I said earlier. Some things are mandated by God and said, this is truth. This is sin or this is not sin. Other things you have to build a case for them, which I'm going to attempt to do for you tonight. We also have this idea of, of blessings versus commands. Let me give you an example. Look at Romans 14, verses 22 and 23. Now, just to give you one, you probably don't want me to read you these verses. You'd probably rather just not know this, but look what it says. Um, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Now, what he's talking about is they're, they're arguing over whether you should be able to eat food sacrificed to idols. And whether I should eat this kind of food in front of you or this kind of food. And talking about the Jewish law. And he's saying the convictions of God that are put upon you. You keep those between you and God, and you just act right according to those convictions. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. 
For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let me give you an example. I feel like it is a sin for me to drink a beer. God has called me 12 years ago to not have beer and alcohol in my home. Is it a sin to drink a beer? Absolutely not. God gives us a command that it's okay. Jesus drank wine. And it wasn't just grape juice. Because remember at Pentecost, they said, these guys have drank too much wine in the morning. It wasn't just, you don't get crazy from grape juice, right? It had to be alcoholic. And yet, what does the Bible say? Do not get drunk. That's where the line of the command is. But for me, God has called me to what I feel like a higher standard. For me to drink a beer, it is sin. Maybe for Rudy, to not to drink a beer is not sin. Because God hasn't put that conviction maybe in his heart. I don't know if he has or not, but I'm saying... That's a sin line that's different. Because of my faith, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if what you're doing does not come from a heart of faith, then you could be sinning. You could sin with a tweet, even though the Bible says, thou shalt not tweet about this or that. You can sin when you cheat and do these different things, right? But God has said, whatever does not come from faith is sin, but he also gives us in 1 Corinthians 10 an important teaching. It says, all things are lawful. In other words, you have grace. It's okay to sin because God has forgiven you. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are beneficial. Not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So we have freedom In Christ, he says we should have responsibility. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. There's our neighbor again. How are we supposed to do our neighbor? Love them, right? Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So do you see the social issue on this day? Should we eat this? Should we eat that? And he says, dude, it's lawful. If you want to eat a hooved animal food, you can eat it. It's lawful for you. But it's not always beneficial, If you're trying to share Christ with someone who's struggling in that area about what's right and what's wrong, you should, as a a person in Christ, love them enough to not eat that in front of them, not be a stumbling block to them. So this idea, we're going to come back to these two ideas a ton throughout the night, so I want to make sure I introduce them to you before we get too far. All right, equality. God is a God of equality in social, racial, and gender issues. Okay? God is a God of equality. Let me give you two verses that I feel um, back that statement up. Galatians 3, 27 and 28 say this. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Remember we talked about dying to Christ of baptism, raising newness of life. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? In Christ Jesus, you are all equal. You are all part of the same body of Christ. And Christ views you all as equal. So that means in social realms of the rich and the poor, he sees you as equals. In men and women, what does he see? Equality, right? When we start talking about races, right? Black, Mexican, white, all these different races, he sees them as equals. God is a God of equality. Look at this next verse, 1 Corinthians 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not dependent on man nor man on woman. For as woman was made from man, 
So man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. And so in our world today, one of the most um, prevalent belief systems that out, is out there is this idea of feminism and this idea of racism. We see racism a ton at work when we talk about police and violence and different things like that. And we see feminism at work, especially when we have um, Hillary Clinton running for president, Trump and Cruz and those other guys. And we see these issues of equality, especially male gender equality. So we're going to focus mostly tonight on male and female gender equality and this idea of feminism, right? Because feminism has become this buzzword in our society today. Uh, 56% of people view the word feminism as negative. And so we want to get back tonight to see what is the definition of feminism, what are some of the goals of feminism, and decide where we stand amongst that case. Now, I want to make sure I'm clear. I'm going to try to present to you a balanced case, but I'm going to make sure that I present where I stand on that. Because I took surveys this week, I'm going to send this for several weeks, and I am 85% feminist. Just in case you're wondering if you could put a label on it, okay? I'm 85%, and I'll explain to you where that come from in, in different surveys I took. I'm a quote, whatever feminist on one survey as well, um, because I believe that the person that I follow, Jesus Christ, was a feminist. That he made a bigger view and a bigger view of women than anyone else had up until that time. And I want to try to prove it to you. But here's what feminism means. This is the definition um, that I found from Webster. I also looked on um, the National Organization for Women to find their definition to make sure it was solid. It wasn't just Webster messed it up. This is pretty much the um, across the board. I even got it from Molly. She checked me out, made sure I was good. The advocacy of women's rights on the grounds of political, social, and economic equality to men. That is Webster's definition of feminism. Many, I think it was 94% statistically, embrace feminism's bedrock principle that men and women should be socially, politically, and economic equals. 94% of the people surveyed believe that those bedrock principles are true. Right? Um, this is a book, um, Young Women, Feminism, and the Future by Jennifer Baumgartner and Amy Richards said this. Um, Most women come to feminism through personal experience. And so in this book, she continues to define it. Let me read another quote from that book. It says, breaking down that one very basic definition, feminism has three components. It is a movement, meaning a, a group working to accomplish specific goals. Those goals are social and political change implying that one must be engaged with the government and the law, as well as social practices and beliefs. And implicit to these goals is access to sufficient information to enable women to make responsible choices. Right? And then she says this quote that we just read. Right? Most women come to feminism through personal experience, which is one of the reasons that the core identity of feminism has to be elastic. Here, here's what she's saying. Most women are coming to feminism because men are treating them wrongly. Because men have not taken the God-given abilities and responsibilities and taken them to honor women. And so from personal experience, we have created a movement of people. Um, You've heard the different terms like patriarchy and different things about men-dominated cultures, right? Um, But the onus is on the men in this room. How do you treat women, right? Let's look at a couple examples about how Christ treated women to give us as men an idea of how to treat them as well. Luke 10, 
Um, verses 38 through 42. Now they went on their way, Jesus entering the village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him, her, welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister um, called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teachings. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Tell her to, to, then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. Now, I know you don't understand that in today's culture, but in that culture, women were viewed as property. They were viewed so extremely low in the Jewish culture. Now, if you go back to Proverbs 31, um, you look at different people in there, they valued women, they valued wives. But at the time of Jesus, it was a crime for the woman that had the perfume to touch Jesus' feet. And yet Jesus, in this case, says, no, Mary, who is acting like a disciple, sitting at his feet, is doing the better thing. Jesus elevated Mary to the status of disciple, like being your follower of me. Martha, be careful not to get caught up in all the preparations and not see the truth that's before you. You remember the story about Jesus when they caught the woman in adultery, right? And they drug her out, which by the way, um, it takes two for that crime, right? Adultery? Okay. Um, so they drag her out and they put him before her feet, right? According to the law, what was supposed to happen to her? Stoned and killed, right? And Christ rescued her. He said, he who is out without sin cast the first stone. And he started writing on the ground. And one by one, the accusers left. You know, you know what's crazy? Christ could have thrown the first stone. He was without sin. He could have pronounced judgment on her, yet he didn't. And then what did he tell her at the end? Go and sin no more. You see how Christ took the situation that these people were trying to trap him in and he rescued. You think about the story with the perfume and he said, people over for generations will talk about what she has done. Remember Jesus, when he was resurrected again, who did he appear to first? Women who had no right to testify in that culture. Jesus Christ showed honor, showed respect, protected and loved women. We, as men in Jesus Christ, should honor and love women as well. There's no excuse. We talked about love earlier, right? There's no excuse to hate, no excuse for bigotry, no excuse to downplay those things. We have a God who is a God of equality. But the problem is we have sinners. The problem is we all fall short of the glory of God, right? And so just as men have oppressed women for many years, we have, I have a few problems with the modern feminist movement that is out there. As I bash on the men and say, you guys have got to step up and be the men of God, I have to talk to the women as well. Pure feminism, unfortunately, has been lost a lot in their message and in their priorities. The idea of social and economic equality with men has been lost. It's, I understand why it's been lost because of the oppression of men. It's like you have to swing the pendulum so far to try to get to the middle. Um, but I took a couple of statistics and, and different things to put on there. Here's the first one. So now stands for the National Organization of Women. I mean, if you go to their websites, it's the leading um, movement for women's rights in our, our, our 
whatever country that we live in, USA. Um, this is their official priorities, okay? They would not call these beliefs. I went to their bylaws and looked for beliefs, and they don't have beliefs. They have what they call priorities. And these are um, the five priorities that they put forth for the women's movement in today, all right? First one, achieving economic equality for women. This is the concept that women should be paid the same amount as men for the same job. I think most people should, we should agree on that. If women are doing the same job, they should get paid the same amount. Okay? Now, you'll hear a lot of talk about um, the economic disparities in men and women's pay, and there's a lot of factors on that, which we won't get into completely tonight. But I think in the, in the base, basic principle, we should agree that if a woman was a youth minister, they should get paid the same amount as I do, okay? Doing the same job, okay? Second one, um, championing abortion rights, reproductive freedom, and others, women's health issues. Where I differ from the feminist movement is on championing abortion rights, and we have an entire section on that on the next page that we'll get into why, and I'll talk about that. But again, we agree on women's health issues. We should have correct facilities, opportunities for women to get health care in our country. And there's tons of them. Even if you disagree with Planned Parenthood, which I do, which I believe in defunding Planned Parenthood, but there's 1,200 other organizations that do women's health in our country, 8,000 locations in all 50 states. I say, if we're going to give money, let's give money to them that are doing true health issues. Planned Parenthood makes enough money on abortion to be able to fund their program. And so they don't need our taxpayer money to do that. I don't believe that we should shut Planned Parenthood down. They have a right to be a company because they are, you have a right to, in our country to build a business. But it doesn't mean that we need to be giving taxpayer money for that. We have lots of other organizations and lots of service. I'm a total capitalist. We can get into that another time. Everyone has a right to be able to do that. We don't need to help a certain company be above those reproaches, okay? Um, number three, supporting civil rights for all and opposing racism. Now, I've got to pause. I'm not sure how racism has gotten into the women's movement. Racism is its own issue. But I do agree with this statement. We should have equality. We should have civil rights for all, men, women, all races, social, economic. We should have civil rights for all of those. There's no right to have a different standard for those as well. Opposing bigotry against lesbians and gays. I 100% agree with that. We talked about that earlier. There's no room for hate. That We're supposed to love. Just like in the story that we watched, we need to be loving. And we'll talk a lot more about that in the third section that we're going to talk about. Ending violence against women. I am 1,000% in agreement on this one. I have friends that have been beaten in marriages and things of that nature. And everything in me wants to go and beat that man and show him what it's like. There's no excuse for men to beat women. There's no excuse for women to beat men. There's no excuse for violence in the home. There's no, no, no excuse for violent crime in our country. And so either direction, we should be ending violence against men and women, especially in a home setting. Okay? Now, what does that mean? What are the practical battle lines that get drawn? I gave you two of them that we're going to talk about tonight. First one is gender roles, right? God has created us equal, yet he has assigned us different roles in the body of Christ. This is generally where people end up getting mad at me, so I'm sorry. Right? God has created us equal, but he's given us different roles and opportunities to one another. Um, for example, 
In Ephesians chapter 5, which is where you have the, the wives must submit to their husbands um, verse that makes very, a lot of people very angry um, when you read that verse. Well, how can that verse be in the Bible? But if you read the verse right before that, I believe it's 521, it says, Every one of us should submit, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in other words, I submit to Rudy. When he says something, he asks me to do something for him. I submit to him and I do that. I have to submit to Jonathan Leftwich because he's my boss. When someone writes something and I'm, I'm frustrated or upset about it, I'm not allowed to respond because he's told me no. And I have to honor him and I have to choose to submit underneath of that authority that he's given me. See, the Bible says that each one of us should, I can't say that together, should submit to one another. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. So we're all submitting to one another. And I understand that word feels Oppressive, and yet God has given us different roles. But I think 1 Peter 3 7 is a little bit more of a lightning rod on this particular topic. Look what it says. It says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women. That sounds awesome. Like that's, yes, what, what woman wouldn't want a man to honor them and show them the respect that they deserve? But look what it says next, because this is the part you would underline that would make you mad. As the weaker vessel. Woo! Feel the blood rising. God has called us a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. See, men, the responsibility we have to showing honor to our wives can restrict our prayers to God. That's how important it is to Him. If you are a woman hater, God says, I don't need to listen to you. That's harsh. That's a calling for us. But in this verse, instead of seeing that as being honoring to women, the number one thing they're going to say is, but God has called us a weaker vessel. But look in Romans chapter 9. He uses the same word vessels here, and I want you to see what he says about it. It says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable uses and another for dishonorable uses? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy for which he prepared beforehand to do? Here's what Paul is saying to us. Who are we to argue with God about the way that he created us. God has created us male and female, but he's also given us different roles. He's given us different jobs in the body of Christ. And our argument is not against man, it's against God. Why have you created me the way that I am? Why have you created me in order to use me for these different Purposes. Now, in this verse, he's talking about the saved and the unsaved, and there's this argument between them. But this idea of vessel, this idea of God forming us together is so vital for us to understand. Just because we have different roles doesn't mean that we are not equal in Christ. Doesn't mean that a woman can't lead. Doesn't mean that a man can't submit. It just means that God has set forth a plan for his creations, and he has put us in these specific different roles. Let's look at the next one. God has called us to honor one another 
with our lives. One of the um, kind of lightning rod ideas in our culture today is this idea of modesty, right? This idea that um, we have a right as people to wear whatever we want to wear, and we have a right to do that, right? Um, look at what 1 Timothy 2.8 says. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. So he tells men, you have to stop living with anger and you have to stop quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And so God has called us um, as men and women to honor him with our bodies. The way that we dress, the way that we adorn ourselves, he's called us um, to that. Now, that brings forth a question. Do we have different standards for men and women when it comes to dress? Yes, oftentimes, right? We have different standards for that. We don't have what we call equality in that one of the topics we spent, we, we worked some of this out on Monday night talking as adults, and it was a lot of fun um, being in that setting and talking about different things. Um, we talked about um, one of the things we talked about was bathing suits, right? For example, the refuge rule on bathing suits is that um, a girl must make sure that they're covered completely, right? Like total head to toe. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> that you must cover the midriff area um, when you're in a bathing suit. And the question was, um, well, why don't we make the guys do that? And my response was kind of, well, because um, we've always done it that way, right? Just kind of that. And then, but as you begin to look at it, right? Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this or not, so hopefully we will get too trouble, right? Uh, guys' abs are like the girl's breast, right? Okay, I'm just, just putting it out there. Girls are sexual creatures too, right? Girls can be turned on by the looks of a guy, just like a guy can be turned on by the looks of the girl, and generally, it's abs. Now, I know this because I watched the movie Thor. And there's a scene where Chris Hemworth, for some reason, was sweaty. I don't know. It was, it was so hot here on Asgard. And he had to take off his shirt, right? And here's what I heard. Oh. Ooh, right? All of a sudden, yes, I've been waiting my whole movie for this. That was one quote from someone that, that's in my family, right? Um, it was like, whoa, I'm excited. He did that. Why? Because girls are sexual creatures too. And so as refuge, we had to start talking about, we need to have the same rule. We need to make sure that we're consistent to make sure that those things are, are real. And that's what happens is when you begin to look at these different topics, sometimes you don't even know the prejudice that are there because we've just always done things a certain way. But God has called us to honor him with the way we dress. But I say, Galatians 5, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Right? Look down at 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each one of you knows how to control his own body in honor and holiness, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. You see, Men are responsible for their lustful thoughts. Women, you're responsible for your lustful thoughts, regardless of what someone wears. And yet, you're responsible 
to show godliness to other people and honor him with the things that you wear. When you wear something that isn't honoring to God, you're honoring yourself. And the praise that you get is going to be empty praise. Our goal in Christ should be in 1 Timothy to honor God with the way that we worship him, with the way that we act, with the things that we wear. That our, our beauty and our amazingness should be an internal beauty, both for the guys and for the girls. Well, here's my conclusion, right? And then I'll let you ask a couple questions, okay? Here's the first thing I want you to realize, that there's no other worldview with equality as belief in Jesus Christ. So many people in our day that are in a feminist movement or in this equality movement, they don't believe that they can be a Christian. When I don't know what else you can be besides a Christian if you're truly going to be a champion for equality. No one else in the history of these different religions has championed the women Jesus, the way Jesus Christ has. Much of the feminist movement are in atheists. They believe in no God, but that is the worst belief system and worldview to be in. And here's why. If you're an atheist, you have no worth at all. If you believe in atheism, that there is nothing outside of the physical, there is no worth. Your pre-mortal slime that just by chance and random circumstances were made into something. You have no purpose. There is no morality in atheism. You see, atheism has to borrow the idea of morality from Christianity to even make that statement. Because in atheism, there is no truth. You're pre-programmed. You're just this computer of stimuli and something comes in, something comes out. That is the belief of atheism because there is nothing outside. You're not, you think you're thinking, but you're not. You're just doing what the stimuli told you to do. That is the belief of atheism. You have no equality. You have no right. It's survival of the fittest. That is the evolutionary movement. To be an atheist and to believe in equality is ridiculous. Just ridiculous. There is no grounds for equality. You look at other religions. You look at Muhammad and the view of women that are in there. You look at these other religions that are outside of Christianity and the women hating that's going on there. There's only one system that treats people with equality, and that's the Christianity. It's the one result that you have to come to if you're going to live by a logical choice. And yet, for some reason, Satan has begun to shape our culture where they believe that Christianity has rejected those things. And you know why? Because there are Christians in our world that sin. And there are Christians in our world that hate. And the hypocrisy and the sin of those people has caused so many problems in our world because they're not living like Jesus Christ. You are called to take up your cross daily and follow Christ. If you're not reading the Gospels to know how Christ acts, how can you possibly, how can you possibly follow him if you don't know how he acts? You don't know how he acts when he's walking through a crowd and someone touches the hem of his garment, right? And he doesn't rebuke her. He tells her to go sin no more. You look in the Old Testament at verses about the way that God treated women, right? You have Deborah, who is a prophetess and a judge, in the Old Testament. Um, you look at these different, at war, Ambalek was fighting and this woman kills him and wins the battle. There's tons of examples of God's equality in the Bible. We have to begin to live it, but we have to be able to live equality, not put a bunch of other stipulations 
upon it. Okay? All right. If you wrote down a question, I'm ready. Or I can go all the way through and then we can come back. I'm going to keep going. Go ahead, McKinsey. Can you talk in this? I don't want you to have to stand up, but that way they can all hear you. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so when you talk about modesty, you said um, we should dress in a way that's honorable to God. So who determines what like dress is and isn't honorable to God? Like, who's going to tell me this is honorable? Right, I think that's a great, a great question, okay? Um, what determines the standard of dress that um, is honorable to God? Okay, I think that's a great question. Um, when we look at it and we look in God's word, it doesn't give us a lot of... Um, specifics on how to dress, okay? But I think if you look at this verse, which is back here, right? Um, it says, I desire then in every place, I'm looking at 1 Timothy um, chapter 2, um, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. So this is clothing, right? Um, with modesty. Now, what he's talking about modesty is that cultural modesty. Um, and again, do you remember we said in the very beginning that everything is lawful, but not everything is beneficial, right? So, Modesty is going to be defined by somewhat your conscience before the Lord. When you stand before the, the mirror, are you saying, man, I could honor God in this outfit? Or am I saying I'm trying to draw attention to myself in this outfit? Now, does that mean that you have to, like, look bad? Absolutely not, right? God's not saying women need to look bad, okay? He's saying, are you able to honor me through the way that you're dressing? Or are you going to draw attention to a certain part of your body that maybe aren't honorable to um, the men. Now, again, are you responsible to the men for they can't, shouldn't lust after you? No, but yet we should honor them. And it says, um, with self-control, not with braided hair. Now, in that culture, that meant that you had to have your head uncovered in that culture. So I don't think it's like, oh, you're sinning because you have braided hair today, right? I don't think it's saying that. But again, it's drawing attention um, to ourself with gold, pearls, costly attire, with things that are going to draw more attention to your body then be honoring to Christ. So I think you have some freedom in that. If you go to Proverbs 31, it talks about this um, woman that he's honoring and talks some about her dress in there as well. So does that answer your question? Go ahead. Okay, so just because a certain part of your body is accentuated by being your clothing means you're trying to draw attention to it, I think that's what I'm understanding. Is that correct? I think if you're saying that, what is your purpose in, like, what's your purpose in what you're wearing today? Was it to, right, you just work as, it looks awesome. I'm about to say, like if you're trying to draw attention to a certain part of your body, or you're trying to manipulate people with the, what you're wearing, I believe that's, that's what we're talking about, not honoring God. You're honoring self. So if I was wearing, say, a really low-cut top and short shorts, okay. but I wore it for comfort for myself, right. would that not be honoring God? I think, that's what I said. I think it's going to be according somewhat to your conscience, right, of what you feel like is going to be honoring to the Lord. If you feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm honoring the Lord with what I'm dressing, I'm fine with that. Awesome, right? I think if you, um, in your heart, have a conscious objective to that, um, I think you have a problem with that. So, does that kind of answer your question? A little bit? Okay. Anybody else have a question about that or a thought? Yeah. Yeah. Can you come up and talk to the mic? So. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Okay, just make sure that we can hear you. Come on down. Y'all give Sarah some love. Awesome. 
Thanks for coming down. I was going to ask about the atheism part, but we won't go into it. It's okay. Just grab it. <laughs> oh. uh, when you said about like survival of the fittest, do you, I was, first I want to preface this question. Do you believe in microevolution? Micro as in like evolution inside of a species? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Macro as in species becoming another species? No. Um, I'm, I'm talking about like on a small scale. I just I found it funny to phrase you. Okay. Um, I guess I'm okay with that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't studied a ton of what you're talking about. Oh, but. Okay. No, I'm saying atheism in itself believes in nothing outside of the material. So there is no spiritual realm, right? There's consciousness, but your consciousness is even a result of stimuli that you're, 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 you are built and you are passed down your brain a certain way. And so what stimuli you get in is the response that you get out. There's not, they would say there's logical reasoning, but in atheism itself, there's nothing outside of the material and there is no room for that. So that, that, that was my phrase statement, so. So therefore, there's no room for morality. So. Anybody else? Thought? Yeah. Psst. Come on. Okay, go. Is the verse talks about not being a stumbling block to others, okay? Love is part of that loving our neighbor. So, yeah. I would start with your premise that if you're wearing what you're wanting to wear for your own comfort and not thinking about does it honor God, I think that's something that you have to add into the equation. Yeah. Like your, your comfort, mm-hmm. no offense, your comfort is not what's most important, mm-hmm. right? So we're saying that God, honoring God with what we're do, how we're living our life is most important. Mm-hmm. So you have to add that honoring God so into the equation. Yeah, I'm saying that you have to introduce, are you, what are you wearing, what, thinking about that, asking yourself that question, not just about what do I want to do, but how am I going to honor God through my life, so okay. not letting uh, that be a hindrance, so. So you stated that you think Jesus is a feminist. Yes. Okay, yet you said that in the Bible it says one is a weaker vessel. Correct. So how is that equality if one is weaker than another? Because God has created us with different roles. Right, so you're, you're focusing on that, those ver- the verbiage in, uh, where is that verse that I read? 
Yeah, 1 Peter 3, 7, right? Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, right? Which, by the way, isn't Christ. This is Peter commenting on what his belief through the Holy Spirit, right? And so the question is, uh, what does he mean by weaker vessel, right? Does he mean the roles that we're in, having a lesser role, possibly, than men have? Huh? Different roles? You can still have equality and have different roles. Well, like I said lesser role, but it doesn't mean every woman has a lesser role. But it does say weaker vessel is what God's word is true, right? And that God has created us with his purpose and mold us together. So do I think women are a weaker vessel? And then that God has created us with different roles and different responsibilities. So I, that's when you have to argue with the Lord. Do we think women are, are weaker or lesser? Um, I think God has created us with equality. I think Christ constantly was trying to raise women up to a standard, so... I think it's a creative it's a creative decision by God, but I think it's also a gifting position by God as well. Yeah. I can give you a couple, maybe an example from our marriage um, as well. Um, when it comes to equality in our marriage, right? When it comes to administration, I am definitely not strong in that area. And so for me to lead in administration in our family would be a very poor choice because my wife is gifted in that area. So as the leader of our family, I raise her to be able to be that gift and use the gifts that God has given her. Um, and so I think that's why we have to be careful not to 
clamp on to that term too much. Debbie, you had a question? Sure. Thanks. I don't know you, but I love you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Terry, and you want to say? No one can hear you. Can you talk in there? I think if you look if you look at a bigger council of scripture, right? If you look at the council of scripture from um, Genesis, he took woman out of the rib, right, so that she would be equal, side by side, same, right? Not from the head, so she could 
Lord over him. This isn't the Bible. This is what people phrase, right? Not from the head, not from the feet so he could trample on her, but to be an equal, right? And then that verse we read talked about um, woman was made from Adam, but yet every man after that point was made by woman, right? There's this equality of, well, God created from Adam, but that didn't make less because then men would be less because women are the ones creating man at that point. And so there's this equality. When you begin to look at the way that God treated women in the Old Testament, right? And you look, he had Deborah. He had the other women that he, he looked up. You have Jesus and his example throughout different things. And then you have this word that, of weaker. Well, there's got to be some purpose in that. What is he trying to point out? And I would just encourage you, read through the entire book of First Peter. See what he's talking about. Is he talking about roles in the church? Is he talking about um, roles in society? Is he talking about roles in the family? Is he talking about what is he exactly talking about? And see if you can find what that word is. Maybe that word lesser in the Greek means something that's a little bit different. And so you want to you go through that and phrase that. So I just encourage you to research it, you know? I think they're both valuable, but I think that there's a But I would also say this. I think there are, and you can disagree with me or agree with me, but as I've grown older, there are men that are weaker than other men. Okay, there, there are men that um, are grown boys, right, and that they're weaker than other men. Um, I have a friend that he is just... Um, weaker in his personality. He can't handle um, stressful situations and he can't do different things. And that, that's just a trait that he has, um, is that he is weaker in that particular area. So just because, this doesn't mean he's less valuable or doesn't mean he's not a good friend. Uh, I think it's just a, just a phrasing that has trouble. So I agree. I think there are women that are extremely strong. And you see examples. Why was Deborah the prophetess and the judge over the entire nation of Israel? Because they, there weren't men that were as strong as her in judgment and righteousness and so on. You look at women like uh, Margaret Thatcher, right? Was the incredible, like, I don't know if she was queen or prime minister of England. I can't remember. But she was a great example of she led and she did an incredible job in that, right? You see Carly Fiorina leading this company and, and doing this, this incredible work. I think that's a very important Thing to have. The problem is, like Emma Watson, she was before the UN giving a speech about women's rights, and one of the things she said is, we have to be careful that feminism does become has become synonymous with man hating, right? And it's not about that. It's about becoming having equality among us. That's what I have to say about God's word. It says that in one place, but you see a, a slew of other scriptures that raise women up and do an incredible job of showing their equality with men. There, there's something about that verse that's unique, something that Peter is trying to point out. That's different in there. So I would just read it and investigate it and see what it is. Because so much other scripture points to this beauty and this equality through there. Then there's something about this verse that's unique that he's trying to point out. So that's what I would encourage you with. Right. He's saying that just because you're crying or emotional doesn't mean that you're more weak. So, yeah. You had a question? Well, I think that's an uh, inter- interesting thing to bring up is um, one of the things that is about the movement of equality is that men, maybe men have an opportunity to follow their dream and their, their calling by God to do different things and that women should have the same right to follow their calling and who Christ has made them to be. And so question is, 
is it okay for a woman to choose to be a mom? Is it okay for her to choose to stay at home? Yes, I think that's, that, that's what she's choosing to do. I think that's awesome. So um, we have the, the idea of the feminist movement is to have equality, that they have the same rights, the same opportunities to follow their dreams as men have. So, yeah, thanks. Question? Right, but I would, I would agree with you that culturally, um, I remember that, I mean, you've seen, I mean, you've seen the league of their own, right? There's no crying in baseball, right? And this idea of men act a certain way, girls act a certain way, is, is very cultural. But I have to, one thing I have to add in is um, we are created differently by God, right? Maybe not biologically, but you can't get around the spirit of God, the soul and the emotions that God has created us with and the way that God has made male and female, right? He has created us. And if we're, if we're too, if we're not careful, we begin to put us all in the same boat and we lose the beauty of both sides. We lose the beauty of gender that God created because we're so, we're going to, we don't want to focus so much on the biology of how it, what does God say about those different things? So, you get that? Awesome. Good word. Good word. Okay. I just want to say, yes, the Bible says all of this. I'm not debating that. My problem is that you said that you think Jesus and God are feminists. Right. That's my problem. But so you didn't see this verse that says um, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, nor male or female, that God sees them as equal. So that verse is 
perfect counter to a verse of a weaker vessel, right? So are we countering verses in the Bible like that? No, you're asking, you're asking for proof about what God said, and there it is. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, 28. Right, that men, women aren't dependent on men, men aren't dependent on him, but that woman has been made. So that was a, that was a purpose behind it. I'm saying the Bible shows Christ as being glorifying to women. So, yeah. We can discuss it later if you want to. Principles, priorities. As going back to the, the definition, not the priorities, right? definition of it. Great. Well, let's move on to to life, and we can continue talking after this, okay? Wait, we're... Okay. How do we reconcile that? Um, good. So you're asking kind of about refugee crisis and some of the things that go into that. Okay. Um, what I believe, uh, this is what I believe. This is when I, not the Bible, because the Bible doesn't particularly, but I'm going to use Bible verses to talk about my, my opinion on that. Okay. Is I do believe that God has called us to love our neighbor as ourselves. He's called us to welcome those that are broken. He's called us to welcome the oppressed. And so, yes, we should be um, bringing in refugees, but our government also has a process for which to do that. And so our government has a responsibility to go through the process that they deem necessary. If we disagree with the process, then we should be involved in the politics of, of voting for who is in office that are making these policies for which we go by. So um, we should be involved in politics and electing people that have our belief systems and that we can begin to push that. So should, should we keep someone out because they're Muslim? I say no. Should we screen people for their past and screen people that we deem as terrorists? I would say yes. That's what our government has chosen to do as a process. I don't think our government should usurp the process in order just to bring people in. They should go with the process that they have in place. Correct, and that's, that's his opinion, and so you can vote for him if you believe that stance, and you vote for Donald Trump in that stance. If you believe that he's wrong, you vote for someone else that has a stance that you believe in. I believe that God has said is, 
And we, we welcome people. We love them. We also, in Romans 13, honor our government and the systems they have in place. So that's our responsibility as Christians. Yay. I don't, I don't want to run for president. That was crazy. All right, let me just hit a couple of these topics real quick um, because we could do entire sermons on all these things. But um, what we have to, I want to make sure I get to the abortion issue because it ties into this equality issue, okay? That God is the author and the finisher of life, all right? Um, Acts 3, verses 14 and 15. This is um, Peter's speech at Pentecost. He says this, But you denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer. Remember when they traded out um, Barabbas for him? Um, to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, who God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Psalm 139, it says, You form my parts in my inward beings. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Job 10 says, Your hands fashioned me and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and that I will return or you will return me to dust. And so my belief is that God teaches that God is the author of life. Now, interestingly enough, when we talk about the topic of abortion, um, God does not give us a clear mandate on abortion. We have to build a biblical case for abortion, for pro-choice, or for pro-life. Okay? If you look in society today, several churches have, have adopted pro-choice positions, the United Methodist Church, um, some of the United Church of Christ, some Presbyterian churches have adopted um, a theology that abortion is not right as birth control, but that in cases of women's health that they have a right to make that choice over their body. So um, there's lots of logical arguments, but I want to give you the biblical case for abortion and give you the biblical case against abortion and then let you decide, okay? Um, Jeremiah 1 Verse 5 says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and I appointed you as a prophet for the nations. This is the idea that God in the womb has a plan for your life. That he's ordained the days that have been set before you. And that God has a plan for your life. The idea of the sovereignty of God. We see in Luke chapter 1, we have this meeting of Elizabeth with Mary. And we see this word, um, in those days, Mary arose and went in haste to the hill country, to a town of Judea, and entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, this word used for baby is the exact same Greek word that is used in Luke 18 and very a lot of other places that Luke the physician went throughout the Bible. But it's the same word that we have for children here in Luke 18. Now they're bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. And Jesus called to them and said, Let the children, same word as the baby that was in the womb, come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. Okay? And so this idea that God from beginning of conception views this baby as a person and has a plan for them. Um, have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put innocent or honest people to death for I will not acquit the guilty. So the Bible is saying that God honors those who honor life and those that dishonor life that shed innocent blood will be guilty. And those are verses that we would use 
to begin to build a position that we should not murder or kill innocent blood of a baby that's in the womb. Now, the churches that have the opposing view to that would use these four verses that are below as proof that God has given um, the opportunity for women to have an abortion. Now, before you get too far, um, abortion has been a practice since really early in time. So the idea that, well, um, abortion wasn't around back in the Roman days or back in Jesus' time. Um, abortion, infanticide, all those things were around at that time. But here's one of the verses that they use um, in a biblical argument for pro-choice. Exodus 21, 22 through 25 says, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, and the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judge determines. And if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And so the idea here is that they have a less value on the baby in the womb than they have on the life of the mother. And so they would say there's lesser value in that. But yet, pro-life would use this as saying the baby does have value. It's proven in God's word. So both would use that case. Ecclesiastes 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, he also has no burial. Say that a stillborn is still better off than he. And they equate that if you live a worthless life, it's just like you were, should have just been born without life. And they begin to try to equate those two things together, which I think is a very weak position, okay? Um, Numbers five, um, he has made her to drink water then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith. Hey guys, y'all can, Rudy, y'all can discuss after we're done. We're almost done, 10 minutes, okay? Because y'all are talking over me, so. Um, When he has made her drink water, he's talking about the sterilization. Some people believe this was abortion. Most scholars say there's no way this is abortion. This is talking about um, sterilization. Numbers 339, all those listed among the Levites whom Moses and Aaron listed at the commandment of the Lord by clans, all the males from a month old and upwards were 22,000. Some people want to say, well, this is proof that um, a month in the womb, then you're considered a person. Yet scholars would say that this is not about babies in the womb, but babies who had already been born at that point. Okay? Now, if you turn the page... um, Here's a couple of the arguments about um, abortion, birth control, um, things of that nature, okay? Um, One of the arguments about abortion is that without abortion, we would be overpopulated um, as the planet Earth, okay? Um, But that is false. Um, If you didn't know, if you take the billions of people that are in the world, you could actually fit them all in Texas, and each person would have 100 square feet, if you take every person in the world, you could put them in the state of Texas. There's more states than Texas. I know it feels like we rule the world, but um, there's a lot more space. But the question is resources, okay? Um, do we have the resources to support them? Um, a lot of the problem that we have with resources is distribution, the fact that um, the rich want to keep what's theirs and they don't really want to share. Um, but the real question is, would the church of God step up I mean, the church is generally the one leading the fight against abortion. The question is, would the church step up if abortion was illegal? 
If a baby was born and unwanted, would the church step up and being into adopt? James 127 says, pure religion is taking care of orphans and widows. Unfortunately, I have to say probably not. We as the church probably would not step up and take care of the orphans and take care of the widows as we should because we love our lives too much, because our identity is found in the things that we have, not in the, the, the plans of God. And so unfortunately, um, I feel like it would take an act of God to change the church to be able to step up and meet the needs um, that our country would have. But the real issue that I feel like um, abortion falls under and birth control falls under, underneath of is um, this idea of selfishness versus stewardship. In other words, what is the decision um, that you're making for this life? Is it for selfish reasons or is it stewardship of the Lord? Um, in my belief system, this is outside of the Bible, but I believe I built the case through the Bible in my own mind. Um, I see God as the author of life and the finisher of life. So what does that mean for me? Um, I do not believe in abortion um, in any case, okay? Um, you could come up with a lot of specific cases for me. For example, you could come up with um, if someone has been raped, if my daughter was raped and became pregnant, would I change my mind? I would say no, absolutely not, because I believe God is the beginner of life. There's somewhere, someone in this room today who was a result of her mother getting raped, and God has taken that life and done incredible things through her for people to come to know Jesus Christ because of this life. I would say, no, we have no right to end that, that God is the beginner of life. I would say that we, God is the ender of life. So if you ask me my position on capital punishment, I don't believe in capital punishment because I believe God is the finisher of life. Now, it's okay if you believe otherwise. I'm okay with that. But I'm just saying, in my worldview, God begins life and God ends life. And so I don't, I don't leave room in that. I trust the Lord in those different situations and those different cases, okay? And so that's where I would go with that. Now, just a quick word on the homosexuality and then we'll have some questions, okay? Um, I, I gave you a lot of notes down there and to encourage you to look over those, um, but that God created sexuality and God created us, he molded us, that he created us with an opportunity to honor him with our bodies, right? And that is sexually um, as well, right? Romans 1 is very clear and has given us a mandate that homosexuality is wrong. So God has said in his word, if you read um, Romans 1, 24, it says, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped um, the creature rather than worshiping the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with men, with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I want to point out just a couple things about this verse. It clearly defines... This is homosexuality, and it defines it in a loving way. This doesn't have to do with pagan worship or anything of that nature. It says men exchanging relations for one another. This isn't in an abusive case or pagan worship in the Old Testament, okay? Um, so there's some argument about that. I gave you a few of the arguments for homosexuality. Why did people change their mind? Um, because they know people are homosexual, and they're awesome people. 
And I don't doubt that. Homosexuality is a sin, just like some of you are liars and some of you are lusting and some of you have other issues and you're still awesome people. I don't have a doubt about that, but it doesn't mean that we change our belief system based upon personal experience. Historical revisionism, that's the idea of pagan worship, um, that homosexuality and loving relationships hasn't been around for a long time. But if you read Plato, he talks about this idea of homosexuality, saying Zeus created two different type of people and that this has always been a movement, even from the ancient Greek cultures, right? Um, and so on and so forth, okay? Now, let me jump into a couple questions and then... Well, you can leave if you want to leave. If you want to stay and discuss, you can stay down here and discuss. Um, do you have the freedom to attend a homosexual wedding or to bake a cake for a homosexual wedding? Or do you have the right to give, do the flowers for a homosexual wedding? Yes, you have a right in Christ to go and, and, and view those different things. That is between you and the Lord. Do you remember our verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 10? Everything is lawful. Maybe not everything is beneficial. A perfect example, Jonathan Lefwich um, and I were discussing these topics the other day. Um, and he said in his family, um, Elizabeth's brother is homosexual. And they invited him to the wedding. And Jonathan and Elizabeth prayed, fasted, sought the Lord, and didn't go to the wedding. But they chose to go to the reception afterwards. Okay? They wrote a letter saying, we love you, but we can't support your marriage. But we still love you. All right? And they went to the reception afterwards. Right? They have total freedom in Christ to choose to go and support that person and love that person. Now, if you have a conviction from the Lord that you should not do that, then that's between you and the Lord, and you should not go if you feel a conviction from the Holy Spirit. Just like I have a conviction not to drink alcohol, and it is now sin, I believe sin for me to drink a beer, the same could be true for you based upon your conviction. But yet God's word says all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. So you have an opportunity based upon your conviction from the Lord in that way, right? The last point is this. Oh, okay, he said brother day. Cousin. Okay, cousin. There you go. Thank you for correcting me on that. Um, last point. Should we vote against same-sex marriage? Okay, this last point. Um, yes, you should vote, right? I think you should vote against same-sex marriage. Here's why. Marriage is a word defined by God in his word. He defines it from Genesis. You shall leave your father and mother and become one flesh. Remember, Adam and Eve didn't have a father and mother. Remember? From the dust they were formed. So he gave a commandment at that point. I, do I believe that same-sex couples can have a union where they have the same tax breaks, the same rights? Sure, they can have all of that. But the word marriage is a biblical word that I feel like God is reserved. So if our government gives us an opportunity to vote on that, you should vote based upon your convictions in that way. But I want to just finish with two quotes and then we can go, all right? Here's one um, by Flannery O'Connor, which is just a cool name, all right? It says this, the truth doesn't change based on our ability to stomach it. Can I read that for you again? The truth doesn't change based on our ability to stomach it. God's truth and what God teaches, even if it's hard for us to believe, we have to go back and say our very first foundation was that God's truth is the word of God, all right? And here's the last point that I want you to not miss. Advocating for Christian behavior is not the gospel. The, Jesus' death and resurrection to forgive those who break those same standards, that's the gospel. 
So yes, you should vote for those things, but the ideas and the votes should not become ultimate. What's ultimate in our lives should be sharing the love of Jesus Christ with others. And when we miss that, when we become hostile to other people, we lose the opportunity to share the love of Christ with them. I'm going to pray, and then anyone can come up and ask questions. If you want to stay, you can. It's already 9 o'clock. If you need to leave, you can leave. Just please talk in the foyer so that anybody else that wants to have questions answered, we can come down here and have a discussion. Okay? Y'all grab your hand. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have tonight to talk about your word, to talk about um, your view of us, Lord, through equality, um, through sexuality, through abortion, Lord. And I just pray that you'll continue um, to bind us together in you, Lord. I pray against um, the enemy's attack that will want to divide us, that will want us to hate one another and, and not give us um, just a unity in Christ, to fight for the things, Lord, that you fought for. So, Lord, teach us, guide us um, as we go out, as we research these things on our own, Lord, as you convict us through your spirit about these different social issues, Lord. Um, help us to be able to always honor you, Lord, to be able to put ourselves in a position to share the gospel with those that are in need. Lord, we pray for just your honor and your glory to be made among the nations. In your name, amen. Thank you, guys. Come down front if you want to continue discussion if you have time. Otherwise, love you. right and every civil, just like we talk about civil law, they can have every civil right that we have, but, but they've had civil unions for quite a while. Okay, so I just want to make sure I answer your question. Okay, so civil union you don't feel is the same as marriage, but civil union could have a ceremony still, right? And they could still wear a dress. They could still have all the same, same things, and they have all the same rights. Correct, but they have equal representation through union and marriage. I, I have no problem with them, marriage, and then having a civil union and being the exact same civilly at all. Well, I feel like God has defined the word marriage and that they're redefining the word. Does that make sense? I have no problem. They can have every right I have. They can have every tax break I have. They can have every fight in the living room that I have. I mean, they can have all of that. that that's fine. It doesn't bother me. But I feel like God has defined the word and that we, I don't want to redefine it. Does that make sense? So, um, and, I, and I think that the church has done a horrible job with the homosexual community and hated them, like just like the example, how many people would judge him? He's, they're gay, I'm not gonna talk to them about the gospel. But I think that's horrible. Like I've invited tons of homosexual people to refuge all the time, and so. And I think that's a terrible thing in our culture. And we don't want our church to be that way. Like, I don't want refuge to be a place where people couldn't come to because they were homosexual. Well, I understand it is. But I'm saying from the leadership, the message that we're trying to portray is that we want them here. I invite them. I to... No, they can have, again, I, I'm not saying you're using the word marriage. They can have every right that we have marriage. But I'm saying the word marriage is a biblical word defined. They can have every right. They can have a ceremony. They can have all those things. But the Bible clearly says homosexuality is a sin. You can't get around. Separation of church and state. Separation of church and state. I think that's great. Okay, so you should have a church.
I think it's fine because I don't think any, I, I would, I don't like the separation of church and state because I think of America as being a Christian country. I would definitely be in, it's not, okay? I'm saying like in my mind, I'm thinking that. It was founded with a lot of Christian principles though. But, um, but also I would, I would be totally opposed to separation of church and state if it was the Muslim community, Sharia law, right? So I don't have a problem with church and state. I'm going to live my life by loving other people. When I taught at school, um, I loved other people. I was quick to forgive the person that cusses me out in class. Um, I was quick to show love for the hurting, the broken, the raped, all those. And my love for them was what showed Christ to them, even though I couldn't talk about it. Does that make sense? So my job is to live my life honoring God and honoring Christ with that. So I'm okay with church and separation of church and state because I would want it if it was the Muslim religion. So. Um, I, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Right. But again, we're we're not really arguing about anything. Just we're just having fun arguing because again, I don't care if they have all the civil rights that marriage is. My problem is marriage is a word defined by God, and that's that's what I want to protect is the definition of the word marriage. Right. If they want to come up with a word, this is um, beautifying. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think of a word that. This is, you know, we want, to, we want to have a bonding service. Well, awesome. You can have a civil bond. I mean, you can have whatever you want to call it, but the word marriage is biblically defined from the beginning of time. And so I just want to preserve that purity. That I, I could talk about marriage, and I, that's what I mean as a man and woman, where I could say bonding, and I would say that would be homosexual. But they can have all the civil rights. They can have all the stuff. I have no problem with that. So my, my problem is not with homosexual marriage, my, my, my problem is with the redefinition of the word. I feel that's, that's, a, that's an attack by the enemy to try to water down. Because if you change the word marriage, then it goes all the way back to history past, and it's redefined. Does that make sense? So that, that's why I, I don't want it to be redefined. So what about redefining feminism? Well, I try to define feminism. I try to define it by the definition. Not by the principles, but by the definition. Right, which I agree 100% with the definition. I agree 80, almost with, the only thing I don't agree with on the National Order Organization of Women is the abortion issue. That's the only thing I know. Everything else I agree 100% with. So, but you may not call me a feminist. You know what I'm saying? But, do I try to go with equality for women? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, again, we talked about this, right? There's lots of biblical definition. Yeah, you got you're getting caught up on one verse. There's a lot of biblical definition. No, yeah, I think that I think that that's what I'm saying. Well, let me get back to your question. So, Mackenzie, let me, get, let me answer your question, okay? So, when we go to 1 Peter 3, right, what was Peter teaching us in that? Okay, so we have, to, we have to look and say, he was teaching men, and he was trying to encourage men to honor women, right? And so he was encouraging them. What's the reference, what's the things around that? What was God trying to say? Was he saying, because he would say it consistently, women are weaker, 
throughout, right? And so do we see that biblically or do we see this idea of equality throughout the Bible? I would say that throughout the Bible, you see equality of women. Now, not culturally with the way that Jews treated them, right? God, God never commanded to have multiple wives. Just because the Jews did that, that was not a command by God. He condemned that, okay? So just because the Jewish culture didn't do that, that wasn't God. And he came down very hard on them for that. His one man, one woman, right? That was his plan. They perverted that just like pure feminism becomes perverted by other people that have an agenda, right? And so they don't always represent. Like we said, a woman's choice to become a mom. Yes, are you shaking your head? Yes, a woman should be able to choose that. There is a huge movement that said that would say no to that. A huge part of the feminists that would say, you're, you shouldn't do that. You should be doing this, right? Oh, yeah, so well, that's radical feminism, but that doesn't, that doesn't change the definition of the movement. It's like, I don't, I don't equate white people with the KKK because of radical sex. I don't right. equate Muslims with ISIS because of the radical sex. Right. Radical sex is feminism, but feminism still stands. Correct. So biblically, don't take the radical actions of a few people as being the truth, look at the whole counsel of scripture and see what does God teach about that, right? He consistently teaches and honors women. When, he, when God was on earth, how did he treat women? I think that's a great place to look and you say, he treated women well, much, much, much better than the society. I think so. Well, now he didn't choose as a disciple, but you, so you could argue, well, he's not equal, but he treated Mary, uh, Mary, the mother of James and John. He treated these other women with huge elevated roles. Who did he appear to first at the resurrection? Women. He gave them a favored status over the men. So you can consistently look at the way Jesus treated people, and he treated people extremely equal. Okay. What about positions of power in church? Positions of power in church. I think that's a, a great point. Let, let's, get, let's get to that. Let me answer a question first, and then we'll go. Okay, so I, I believe the Bible clearly teaches pro-life, but there are people that use those Bible verses um, to say that the Bible proves poor choice. So what, what I'm saying is biblically there's no, okay, in homosexuality there's a very clear teaching on that, okay? In Romans 1, and I could give you a slew of other verses, okay? Um, in abortion there's not a clear verse that says you should not do an abortion, okay? So we have to build a biblical case. So I believe I could build a very strong biblical case based upon Psalms 139, Jeremiah, these other verses, okay? Um, they would say, well, we can build a case too using these verses. And so these are the five, four or five verses that the um, United Methodist Church uses as their discussion and argument. So. Right, and, and I would agree. I don't think these are strong. That's the reason that I lean, that's the reason that I'm more pro-life than I am pro-choice, because I don't feel like this is a strong case, right? The first one I feel like is their strongest verse, saying if the baby is killed, there's a lesser penalty than if you kill the mother. So if I were to hit your stomach and kill your baby, then I would, your husband would have a fine against me for the life lost. But if I were to hurt you, they would hurt me the same way. So they're arguing that, um, that's saying the mother is worth more than the baby. So that would be their discussion argument in that point. Um, but pro-life use that to say, but there's value with the baby. See, there's a, there's a, value, there's a value there as well. So the, both verses use that one. Um, this one in Ecclesiastes 6, 
It's talking about if you live a worthless life, it's like you shouldn't have been born. I don't think that applies whatsoever to abortion. But they use it, to, they use it and they do a couple, some logical argument to try to say that it's better to just kill them because they might live a worthless life. But I just think that's a huge jump. So I don't think that's strong. But they have it on their website. I, mean, I just went to their website and took these verses off. I didn't pick them for them. I just took them. Um, Numbers 5, which talks about, and they believe that this drinking of the water, the sterilization um, process is a punishment for um, this, uh, this adultery. Um, this is most, almost all, every scholar, except for a few radical ones, believe this is about um, a punishment um, for sterilization, not to abort a baby that's already been impregnated. But they say it's for a baby that's been impregnated. They say perform an abortion if you've committed adultery, which I don't believe that's what it's talking about. And this other number one is talking about, um, well, it's not a life until they're a month old. So baby isn't considered a baby until after they've been born and alive for a month. So infanticide would be okay because of that. So that, that would be their argument there, which I just think is a weak position. I feel like this is a, this is a stronger position of God creating life.